Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmelli, my co-host here, Dave Popovich. How you doing, buddy? Yeah, I'm well. How about you, Faisal? Uh, good, good. Um, we have got a very good show on today. I'm interested in a couple things. We're going to bring in the, the quality of your retirement. Yep. And then one of the big conversations that are happening uh, more and more now is how do I protect, structure my, my portfolio so I can reach my retirement goals? And one key thing from a tax perspective and from a, a legal and estate planning perspective, the conversation about trusts. Mm -hmm. We get lots of questions about that. Um, they seem to be a bit of a mystery to most people. So yeah. we thought we'd try to demystify that. We've got a terrific guest to help us do that today. Speaking of mysteries, uh -huh. let's talk a little bit about what happened in the, in the markets this week, um, because there were some, I think, some interesting developments. We did have a bit of a rally in equity markets this week, certainly in the United States, on the heels of a U.S. Fed decision that went on pause, yeah. but was pretty hawkish in guiding to two more quarter point interest rate hikes. Now, Canadians will say pause, pff, that, that doesn't mean stop. We, we experienced that. that. We learned that. Australia kind of figured that one out too. Canada rattled the market when they raised interest rates. Um, the U.S. rattled the market on the positive side to some degree when they pause. I look at this and I talked to, to you about this uh, um, before the show. This is similar to when you go to a play. Mm -hmm. And at a play, there's an intermission. Right. A pause. Right. Okay. And when the intermission comes in, you, you get out of your seats. The first thing most people talk about is, oh, how long is this intermission going to take? Right. Okay. So how long is this pause going to be? <laughs> and then at some point through the intermission, you start having the conversation of, well, what's the second half going to look like of this play? Is it going to be triumph or tragedy? How's it going to end? And now we're going to have all the pundits come out right. <laughs> and start give their, their, their point of view of what they think the Fed's done right or wrong where things are going to go, they're going to give you estimates and forecasts, and the markets are going to react accordingly. Right, right. And just to be clear, we're not saying we're halfway through the rate hiking cycle. We're just saying we're at the intermission at this particular we're, point. We're, we're, we're at the intermission of the Fed with their interest rate right. increase, not right. the halfway point. You're right. Yeah. And then, um, so here's what I found interesting. Uh, so the day that the Fed made the announcement, paused, that was expected, I'd say largely expected. Um, I think it was a little unexpected on how um, hawkish they were, specific they were about what might come next. Mm -hmm. And markets actually took a pause that day, pulled back a little bit mm -hmm. on that. And I thought to myself, that was, was it Wednesday? I think it was Wednesday. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking to myself, well, what does the trading activity look like for the rest of the week? And I have to tell you, I kind of went in Thursday morning thinking, wow, it's probably, we've got to flush out some of the weak hands here the rest of this week probably is flat to negative. Nope. Thursday, we had a heck of a rally. And I think people have to, uh, to your point, we're trying to write the second half of the play right now. Yeah. And there's different opinions about how the play is going to end. Correct. Right? Which makes a market. So it's very difficult, I guess, is what I'm trying to say on any given day to determine what the market activity is going to be, the direction, because it can change on a dime. So here's what the, um, the Federal Reserve has kind of put in their, in their what they call the dot plot. Yep. All, the, all the members of the, of the committee kind of, kind of estimate what they're going to see over the next little while. And 
basically it's going to be two more interest rate increases. Now, we don't know exactly when. Could it be July and September right. or when? You know, whatever. It could be two. Could be two. Correct. Not is going to be two. Right. So when people say, don't fight the Fed, the Fed said two. No, they didn't. Right. They say it could be. Right. So let's, let's put one point there. You're going to hear a lot of uh, people in our industry going to come out and say that the Fed's got this wrong. There's no, they've lost credibility. Um, and they have their opinions on what the Fed has done right or wrong. The point that we're at right now is there we are closer to the end of the interest rate increase than we are at the, in the, the middle or the half yeah, yeah. or the beginning. Right? For sure. And so <clears throat> we do know we're going to get through this. The, the problem is that we have to identify what the risks are. And when you're investing in a portfolio and you put all your money into growth, all your money into what you're seeing, all these stocks that are taking off and you put all your money in there, you're missing out on the risks that are out there and you need to balance your portfolio to see that those risks are still relevant. Right. Let's go through some of those risks. Sure, yeah. Number one, the biggest indicator of a deep recession is the Fed overcorrecting, Correct. raising interest rates too much. You're gonna hear people in our industry talk about that. Well, you're already hearing it, right? They've gone too far, too fast. We just haven't seen the result of that yet. Correct. And you also are going to see um, the conversation of stagflation again, mm -hmm. where inflation continues to go up. Or, or stays at a higher level than anticipated. Fair gets enough. stickier. But growth rates are lower. Right. Possible. Possible. One point that I think people are not really talking about, and will as we get closer and closer to the federal election on both sides of the border, especially the United States because it's coming up first. It is hard to become the incumbent and win again in a recession. Yep. So everybody knows that. Yep, absolutely. Okay. So the way that you can avoid that is pump a whole bunch of money into the economy. Yeah, you spend, right? That whole anti-inflation act that the U.S. government just put in, trillions of dollars right. going in. Right. That's stimulative. Right, spending. Let's pick on our federal government. Yep. We have an inflation problem. Let's pick on groceries. Groceries are too high. There's a segment of the population that can't afford the increase. So whether they really give them more money right. to pay for that increase, that doesn't drop prices. Right. That keeps prices the same. Yep. And so they're getting to this vicious circle at this point in time that if inflation stays sticky, more money will be pumped into the economy. Right. Even inflation goes down, it is in the incumbent's benefit to pump more money because you can, quote unquote, buy votes. Right. And of course, next year in the United States, we're coming into an election year. Correct. Right? So they're going to be, the Fed's got to fight against the natural instinct of governments and their fiscal policy to spend. And so you'll see reports, our economists that we have at, at, at the firm have said it's time that the, uh, the fiscal hand gets in order. Right. And right. this is where I think the risk is not being identified clearly enough yet. So the result of that, if in fact we do get into an environment where you've got fiscal spending and it creates stickier inflation, the implication from an interest rate perspective is stays higher. Yeah. For higher longer. for longer. Right. And so you got to put a probability of one of these things happening, deep recession, or, or, or some aspect of, yeah. you know, pumping more yeah. money to, to prevent inflation to drop as down to the rate that they, the Federal Reserve and the Bank of Canada want it to be. And so if you put, let's make up a number just so we have an idea for conversation purposes, a 30% to 40% probability that 
one of those risks or a combination of those risks are going to happen. Mm -hmm. If that happens, if it occurs, stock markets fall, you've got, you've got higher interest rates, bond market will fall, so on and so forth. So how do you protect yourself in that situation? Right. Just go ahead and buy a whole bunch of AI stocks? No. <laughs> it's not going to help. That's only been the answer for the last three months. That's, but that's been the answer because there is a lack of growth in the market. Yeah. And the, the market has already said, outside of those yeah. 10 large companies, that nothing is growing. In fact, a bunch of it should be is pointing towards recession. Right. So you pick the companies that can grow faster and faster and faster, and it, the, the topic du jour is AI. And so it's, it's AI, I would agree with you on the majority of that run. It's also these big tech companies are flush with cash. So they've almost become the new de facto defensive play. And have no problem cutting. Right. Expenses. Right. And which there are a lot more, and they've all cut. Right. Every single yep. major top 10 tech company that's on, that's doing well this year yep. have all pretty much cut expenses. Yep. So their earnings per share moves up. Yep. That's temporary though. Yep. So the risk is there. So be prepared that if things go the wrong way, you could get hurt in your portfolio. And I think this is the point in time. When you look back, to a year ago, let's go to the summer of 2021, two years ago. The S&P 500 is about the same level it is now. Yep. So it hasn't grown for about two years. When you're an investor and you've felt that for two years, things haven't gone your way. Right. You either get too aggressive and you get caught. And sometimes you don't look at the risk before you chase the return. Uh, less than, well, maybe a month ago now, so we held a session with our clients, a community session called Rediscover Your Retirement Purpose. Mm -hmm. And um, the premise behind that was some of the conversation, at least for me, had changed with clients. There was a, a general, like a higher level of anxiety I was sensing. COVID had changed travel plans. It had just changed plans for people, um, whether that was intentional or not. And so it was, it was fun to get together challenge that and get people refocused back on what is it that they're running towards in this period of time that we call retirement. Can, can you say that last piece about running towards, because you and I've talked about this a bunch of times when it comes to clients that we've talked to or their experiences of what they're having, you're either what running away, away or running towards something. And so we always now phrase it as what are you running towards? Right. Because it gets you focused on what is it you want, right? That's just a different way of saying, what is it you want? But you have to think of your own situation, and I can certainly say, yeah, there's, I've spent uh, time certainly running from things, yep. but it's way more fun running towards what it is you want. Correct. Right? And that's, I think, an important piece of that ongoing retirement puzzle. And when you're running away from something, it makes retirement feel difficult. Right. So how about we speak to an author who has the book, Making Retiring Easy? Mm-hmm. So it's how to create the best retirement life um, for clients. But uh, Gary uh, Poyer is going to join us uh, right now. Gary, I want to first of all thank you for taking some time uh, time to be on the show with us. And um, I want to jump into uh, why the genesis of the idea behind writing this book. Maybe just tell us. I've shared with you a bit about our experience. I don't know why you wrote this book, but I am curious what you saw out there that that you felt the need to to write this uh, write this book. Okay, well, thank you for having me. Um, the reason I wrote the book was uh, I myself am a certified financial planner and met with clients a lot over the years. And I found that a lot of clients, they focused on the accumulation of funds, but they couldn't tell me what they wanted to do in retirement. 
And, uh, you know, at one time I wasn't able to really help them. Uh, you know, quite often clients would ask me, well, Gary, how much should I save for retirement? And uh, I would say, well, it depends on what you want to do. And uh, so that, that was kind of the reason I wrote the book was to help clients, especially the ones who were financially able to retire, but who didn't know what they wanted to do. I wanted to help them figure out what to do with their time in retirement so that retirement could be the best time of their life. And uh, so I just started putting my information together and out came the book. So when you look at what, what you, you've uh, accomplished in this book, there, all these discussions that you've had with clients, um, what have you found as being some of the biggest misconceptions? I think this is a good thing to start with is a lot of clients get things wrong or have misconceptions. What are, what are the biggest ones that you can recall? Well, I think one of the biggest ones is that you know, a lot of clients and a lot of advisors for that matter say to their clients, you wait until you retire and then you can figure out what you want to do. Don't worry until you retire. And I take the exact opposite um, view. I think retirement brings with it a sense of urgency. And the reason for that is we don't know how long we're going to live. We don't know how long our spouse is going to live. We don't know how long our health is going to hold out. So I try and get people to have a, a plan, a blueprint for their retirement so that when they do retire, they hit the ground running. And uh, so I think that's one of the biggest ones because we all know people that pass away early in their retirement and, uh, you know, they just, they miss out on, on so much. So that's probably the biggest um, misconception. And I would say a second one is, you know, a lot of people focus in on a financial legacy. And I myself think a personal legacy is even more important because everyone has a story to tell and everybody is a story to tell. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people should really focus in on their personal legacy as well. I'm going to add another con misconception, I think, Faisal, and this is one that um, you and I come across regularly. And I, I spoke about it this week, actually, and it's this idea that your life is going to be fundamentally different in retirement than it is pre-retirement. Mm. So uh, I'll just use a simple example. How many people we get um, talking about, you know, health is going to become really important in retirement, and so I'm going to, I'm going to start working out seven days a week when I retire because I've got time. And we say, well, how much do you work out now? Oh, no, I, I've worked out in 20 years. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's, it's, in, it's inconsistent that you're going to go from zero to seven days a week, yeah. right? Yeah. So good counsel is, well, if, if health is going to be important, then you need to incorporate it into your life today, and you will carry that into retirement. And fair, you might have more time, so you could maybe go from, you know, start at one day a week, work up to three or four, and then maybe get to seven. But it's, it's not going to be fundamentally different. You've lived your life a certain way for 30 years, right? As soon as you hit retirement, it's not going to fundamentally change. So you're basically speaking about my, my situation with <laughs> golf, right? You're never going to be I'm a, terrible you're at a hockey it. player. I play maybe two <laughs> rounds a year. And I'm like, wait till retirement yeah. and I can take this as a full-time gig. Go crazy. Nope, not, not going to probably happen. Not happening. You know, what's interesting, Gary, is that when, when we speak to clients about, you know, their transition to retirement, many of them have romanticized or thought about retirement like a checklist. I'm going to travel here. I'm going to do these things. And it's literally like a bucket list right. um, or it's a honey-do list. Honey, you have to do this stuff. And then they kind of get into some sort of rhythm going, okay, I've done all the things that I've got on my list. Now what do I fill my time with? 
And that period in, in, is probably one of the most stressful for them because they've got a bit of void in their life. In your experience dealing with clients, when you uncover that situation, what are some of the pieces of advice you would give to them? Well, I think the bucket list is a good starting point, but I think what a person needs to do is go through a, a process. And, and that's what I did. I came up with 30 additional ways to think about retirement. You have to think about retirement from an encompassing perspective, because if you run out of things to do in the first couple of years, you're going to get bored. You're going to get frustrated. You're going to go work at Walmart or, you know, Home Depot or something like that. And you're going to not enjoy retirement. So I think what you need to do is sit down with an advisor and really go through a comprehensive analysis of what you like to do, what's meaningful, so that when you get your checklist complete, you're not, there, there isn't a void. You know what opportunities are before you and you know like, what your life purpose is as well. So uh, there's no reason for somebody to run out of things to do if they're aware of what the opportunities are that retirement's offering them. Some clients have come to the realization usually about 10 years into their retirement that purpose is the act of service. What are they servicing towards? Who are they servicing to help? Um, and who are they giving to? Could be family, could be their community, could be other, other people outside of their own country, whatever it may be. But they start to evolve to a point of finding out that act of service is one of the key ways to, to really illustrate what their, their purpose in life is. How hard is it for people who are so focused on their career, they're so driven in that, to turn that off and get into, get into this concept of retirement? Now, we only have about a minute to go, so I want to put that time frame in place, but just, just give us your, your experience on that. Well, you know, a lot of people, a lot of professionals especially, or business owners, they identify who they are with what they do. They retire, all of a sudden they, they lose their identity. They start to drift. What they need to understand is that what they did for a living was their purpose, but they can have a, uh, their purpose can evolve and they can have a new purpose. And uh, for people who never have had a purpose, retirement's a perfect time to identify what their purpose is. So your purpose will change over time, or if you're lucky enough, it'll stay the same, but uh, it, it will evolve. Gary, if anybody wants to get a hold of your book, how do they do that? Um, the easiest way right now is to, uh, uh, well, it'll be on amazon.ca at the end of June, uh, make retiring easy, or they can email me at gary at aspirepersonalachievement.com. And feel free to reach out to us on the, uh, on the website of morethanmoneyradio.com, connect with us, and we'll get you in li link with uh, Gary so you can get a copy of his book. Gary, thank you for joining us today. Hey, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much question we get a lot um, is about trust. There's lots of confusion and they seem to be a bit of a mystery uh, to a lot of people. So we thought we'd try to demystify that a little bit. And uh, in order to do that, we brought on Jamie Golombeck. Um, Jamie's been a long-term guest of ours. He's Managing Director of Tax and Estate Planning at CIBC. Uh, Jamie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. All right. Why don't we start with what a trust is? So very quickly, can you, can you help our listeners and viewers understand what it, what uh, structurally a trust is and what it represents. Okay, well, I think we'll start with what it's not. A trust is not a legal entity. It's not like a corporation. It's not an individual. It might be taxed like an individual. What a trust really is, is a relationship. And it's a special type of relationship between three parties um, where you have a settler that contributes property uh, to a trust. It's managed by a trustee 
for the benefit of the beneficiaries. So you have the settler, the trustee, and the beneficiaries, and it's a relationship uh, that often governs the use and control of an asset. So in other words, uh, we often use a trust when we don't trust someone. In other words, we wanna separate the legal ownership of property from the beneficial use and enjoyment of that property, typically by the beneficiaries, which could either be capital beneficiaries or income beneficiaries, but in a nutshell, a trust is a relationship. Jamie, there are two types of trusts that people talk about, one while you're alive, one when you pass. Let's kind of break down the two. When would you use one while you're alive and when would you generally use one upon death? Yeah, so again, the terminology we use for the trust you set up while you're alive, inter vivos trust, which is just Latin for, you know, while you're alive. Uh, and basically you use that if you want to do, let's say, I mean, it used to be very popular for income splitting when the rates were a little bit lower. Um, you might set it up for someone with disability. Uh, you might set it up uh, to protect assets uh, for other people that you don't want to have control of. You might even set it up for probate planning in some provinces where probate is a concern uh, using something called an alter ego trust. Those are all cop examples of inter vivos trust. A testament entry trust, on the other hand, is a trust that you can only set up uh, typically in your will. So your will would provide that your assets go, instead of directly to a particular beneficiary, it's held in a testamentary trust for their benefit. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why someone might want to do that in terms of protecting the estate, sometimes providing for a spouse uh, or a second spouse in case of remarriage, providing for kids of the first marriage. Like there's all kinds of more complicated issues. Uh, you have kids with addiction issues, gambling, alcohol, drugs, things like that. Uh, lots of a variety of reasons. Uh, I would say that there's uh, very few tax advantages today of using a trust. Uh, either inter vivos or testamentary like there used to be maybe 15 years ago when, when they changed the law. So most trusts are actually not used for tax purposes. Some are. Um, there's some very specific uh, things we could talk about, but I would say for the most part, using a trust to control. If you want to control during your lifetime, you're using the inter vivos trust. If you want to control beyond or sort of from the grave, you're using your testamentary trust. Uh, there used to be, I'd say probably two years ago, where you could lend money to a trust while you're alive uh, at a prescribed rate, called a prescribed rate loan. That interest rate was what was 1% at that point in time. Um, and then you could have your beneficiaries, your children, your spouse, other people in there. Um, and any income earned by the trust, you could pass on to those individuals and split income. Today, the prescribed rate loan is about 5%. So it's not um, mathematically uh, better as much as uh, advantageous as it used to be. But there may be some reasons to have a trust uh, while you're alive today. So let's go through why it's not beneficial today and what are some other reasons besides income splitting that a trust while you're alive are worthwhile. Yeah. So again, you know, uh, we did a lot of prescribed trust two, three years ago when interest rates dropped almost zero and the prescribed rate was one. And what we did is we loaned money at one and then any return above one was then split in the trust and then paid out to all the kids or the grandkids or the nieces, nephews, the spouse, whatever. Nowadays with a rate of five, uh, you know, you'd have to really get a guaranteed rate of return of more than 5% a year. Uh, and it wouldn't, wouldn't help you if it's capital gains because that's only 50% taxable. So you really have to break 5%. So we're not using them at all unless you already set one up for prescribed rate loan planning, but we are using trust for a whole variety of other things. So, you know, sometimes we are using a trust 
uh, you know, in provinces that have things like probate fees. It's not a big deal in Alberta, uh, but in other provinces like Ontario, BC, if you have a property over there on death, there's a one and a half percent probate. Once you're 65, you could actually roll your existing property into the alter ego trust, or if you're married or living common law, a joint partner trust, pay no tax on the way in. And then on death, the amount goes to the beneficiaries. There's still income tax uh, if it's a second residence, but uh, there'd be no probate because it goes outside the estate. So you got to be 65 to do that. Uh, that's a common use of, of a trust. And then again, um, people are also using Canadian trusts sometimes when they're buying U.S. properties. If they're worried about the U.S. estate tax, depending on the size of the estate, there may not be any tax depending on the size of the property. But again, the idea is that if you own U.S. real estate and you're a Canadian, uh, the U.S. will tax you potentially on that on death. So we often would use a Canadian trust structure to buy the U.S. real estate. Again, assuming there's some significant net worth in the family and there's some significant property being purchased. That way, when you die, uh, you don't own the property on death. There's no estate tax. And ultimately, it goes via the trust, let's say, to the next generation. So again, number of creative ways, plus, of course, providing for someone with disability, uh, people with addictions. Those are all reasons why someone might use a, an inter vivos trust today. We get the question, Dave, a lot about should I get a trust? Should I get a trust? I think one of the key things that we go through as a filtering process, if it's suitable or not, or worth an investigation, is the amount that you have in the trust. And so um, uh, when you look at this, uh, Jamie, when you say, how much should a person have for an inter vivos trust, a testamentary trust, before it makes it worthwhile? Because there's a whole bunch of costs that you have to pay to open up a trust. Yeah, look, I mean, I think it all depends. I mean, we've seen trusts uh, open up for as little as $200,000 simply because you don't want to give a kid $200,000 when they're 18 and just graduated from high school. You know, like my son graduated this week. He's in, uh, he's 17 years old. Uh, you know, I don't think I would give him 200000 outright on his debit card. Maybe I would use a trust, right, to be able to control that in, in some way or form, right, in terms of a gift and things like that. Um, and, and let's also remember that, uh, you know, sometimes there may be very little value right now. So we often use trust in the context of a private company uh, to do an estate freeze where we freeze the value of the company, which has, you know, uh, some value today, but it's really going to grow in the future. And we freeze the value and we issue new common shares to a family trust that actually has no value. And we hope that the company ultimately grows. And then when those shares are worth something, then all the family members that are beneficiaries of the trust could use their lifetime capital gains exemption, right? Which is about a million dollars per person right now, right? So there may be reasons why you would freeze a company which has value, but then issue the shares to a trust, which really have no value right now, other than the future potential growth on those common shares. So uh, look, I would say if it's, you know, 10, 20, 30, $40,000, a trust is really a waste of money. Um, but uh, once you're getting into larger figures, certainly in the six figures or more, uh, absolutely, uh, a trust can make sense. It really depends on your objective. Because again, in most cases, you know, if you were doing it for income splitting uh, at the 1%, I would have said half a million would be your minimum. Uh, you know, these days, if you're trying to income split at 5%, you probably need 20, 30 million <laughs> to do it worthwhile if you think you can get, you know, five and a half or six percent on a fixed bond portfolio, the incremental amount on that, plus the cost, the filing fees, you know, uh, things like that. So when you speak about estate freezing and so forth, for those who are entrepreneurs or business owners, they hear a lot about freezing your the share value for future. But one question that I always ask, and I get different answers, and I'd love to get your opinion on this. 
What percent, if you know, of, of business owners that actually sell the shares of their business versus the assets and goodwill? Because they, they could spend a lot of money on accounting fees to freeze their company, to structure it in a certain way, but then they just sell the business on, for the assets and goodwill. They don't actually sell the shares, and that defeats the purpose of the whole structure. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a real incentive. I mean, we've seen, we're seeing mostly share deals, to be honest, but I mean, the real incentive on, on the seller uh, is to be able to use their lifetime exemption. So it really depends on the size of the business. If your business was worth $300 million, you don't care about the lifetime exemption because it's worth about $200,000 of tax savings, right? It's like, who cares? But, you know, most businesses that are small businesses, they're being sold a couple million bucks here and there. And uh, again, I don't have the statistics on this, but at least anecdotally, uh, you know, when you're selling a small business, this this million dollar tax free is huge uh, because you're saving a couple hundred thousand dollars of tax. So uh, I just think it really, really depends on the size of the business and, and how much you're going to get for it. Jim, I want to thank you for joining yeah. us today. Okay, so um, a common question that we get asked is, am I invested properly? Mm -hmm. They're referring to retirement, right? So I'm, I'm in retirement now. Second opinion, am I invested properly? It's an interesting question. There's a number of things that that conjures up in my mind when I hear it. Like, what's your strategy? People can't explain their strategy. They don't know their strategy. Uh, there's, there's just a whole bunch of issues behind that particular question that you need to explore. But it's one that we thought we should explore because we've had it twice this week, actually, yeah. um, with some people that we're dealing with. In my particular case, dealing with an existing client whose parent was introduced to us. And it didn't take very long to ask a few questions. And we could very quickly identify that this person's portfolio was just invested some way, wasn't really attached to the goals and objectives of that particular person. Yeah, what we find in many cases is that people have been sold to right. and have not built a strategy Excellent around. Excellent point. Yeah. Okay, and so, uh, and the frustration comes into is, oh, just buy this product, it'll work. And, and we're, we're missing out on a whole bunch of pieces, such as what are the objectives of yourself as an individual, not right. just your risk tolerance. Right. And, and, and when it comes to different types of planning, because how you invest in an education savings plan may be different than how you invest in your retirement plan, which may be different than how you invest in your child's first time home buyer's plan, right. and so on and so forth. So you can, you can see they're all different in the approach. And so... I think when you when you mention the word strategy, when you ask individuals, what's your strategy? They look at the output. Well, I want to retire. Well, I want to go to post-secondary education or I want to buy a house or whatever the goal is. That's not strategy. That's the outcome. Right. And even worse, in, in, in a particular case, I different, different case, it was about, I just want a rate of return. Yeah. Right. Or I want to protect. Y yeah. Yeah. This one was about a rate of return. I said, wait a second. Why? 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 There was a number that this person had in mind. Yeah. And it wasn't attached to anything. Yeah. Other than it was a number that he had in his head. And that's a great point. So what ends up happening with many Canadians is some of them have calculated how much they need. And let's, let's make some numbers up here, sure. okay? Let's say you have a million dollars. Yeah. You need $70,000 to come from your portfolio. That's 7%. Right. So I'm going to go out there and look at what gives me 7%. Right. Okay. That's just simple. Makes it easy. Yeah. Now you start <clears throat> combing the market and you look at... ETFs, exchange rate of funds, mutual funds, people's portfolios, doing it yourself, whatever. As long as I got 7%, I'm fine. Yeah. What they've missed out on this is how are they getting that 7%? Right. There's a journey you go through from when you first invest your dollar through when you get that rate of return. Yeah. And that journey we call volatility or risk. Most people cannot quantify risk. Right. And so that's the next question is what's the risk that you're willing to accept in order to get that return. Right. 
The second part of it is, do you really need 7% rate of return in order to get the cash flow you need? And let me give you an example. What if you have this million dollars in non-RSPs mm -hmm. and you need $70,000? Mm -hmm. Do you have to make 7% or more? Well, you have to make more. And what if it's in an RSP? You have to make more. But what if it's in a TFSA? You don't have to make more. There you go. Right. So, so a quantified number of 7% is not 7% always. Right. You'd have to make more. Right. And then how much risk are you willing to accept in order to get that more? Yeah. And I'm going to back it up one step further because in, in my particular conversation, it was really interesting when the first question I asked is, so what's the money for? And he said, wow, I haven't, I haven't asked that before. And so it was fascinating. And anyways, my, my point in saying this is um, rates of return, risk rates, all this stuff that our industry has done for lots of years is a secondary consideration to what, the, what, what are we trying to accomplish with the money, right? And so this is this idea of, of purpose, yeah. right? What does the money supposed to do for you? And here comes the complexity, especially in retirement, is you've got different goals, right? So you don't have a singular pot of money anymore. Yes. Very few people do, I should say. Correct. Right? You, you, um, you, you want to do some liability matching for income in many cases. What, what does liability matching mean for our audience? Right. So if you've got, a, a, if you've got some requirement for cash flow off your portfolio to support your lifestyle, right? You want to, like a pension plan does, is have a portion of those assets that you've got set aside for retirement matched to the cash flow need over time. The liability is what you and I call our income when we receive it. Correct. From the portfolio's perspective, that's the liability, right? So make sure you've got an income bucket set aside to do that. And then there's, there's other goals and objectives, as you said, which can be quite diverse. And in some cases, they can compete against each other, right? You can't achieve the same thing with one investment strategy. Right? I had a, a listener of our show call me up and ask for a second opinion over the phone. He's in his late 70s well, how should I be investing my portfolio given the economic environment was the question. Same question I yep. asked back, what was the purpose? Yep. Oh, I don't, I'm tough for me. This money is for my grandchildren. Well, how old are your grandchildren? One's 12, <laughs> the other one's 15, and then I've got like a four-year-old. Three grandchildren. Great, you got three grandchildren and you're investing this money for them. When will they be using this money? Oh, not until they're done university. So 10 years from now, you got that much time? You can take on a lot more risk, mm -hmm. volatility, with the mindset that you're not touching this money for 10 years right. than if you were to do liability matching right. and have an income bucket where you need the money next month or next year. Right. And that's the difference of strategy right. versus is this the right investment? Okay, so I started this segment and I said, um, you know, the question was, am I invested correctly, right? Yeah. For retirement, let's add that. So. Uh, what I would uh, say to people is you want to, before you're asking that question, arm yourself, sit back, start thinking about what it is the money's supposed to do. And do not be surprised in any way, shape or form when you have multiple things you've listed. Okay. Most Canadian families would say, I need some income. Mm -hmm. Boy, I need some growth because inflation's even at 2%, never mind at eight, at 2%, inflation erodes purchasing power over time. Correct. You have to grow to offset that. Most Canadians will face... Most families will face some form of health um, issue along the way. And, and even if you're healthy to age 95, things change. Quality of care, quality of life changes. And you need to consider the impact of that 
on, on your retirement and ultimately for those that are going to be transitioning assets. How do you do that? We've got a couple minutes. I want to give the idea about healthcare because I think this kind of will open eyes for a lot of individuals. There are people who come to us and say, you know my recreation property? Yeah. Well, if anything happens to me where I can't enjoy that property more and I need home care or I have to go into a home, I'm going to sell that property and there's enough capital there to pay for my care. So we quantify in today's dollars, if you ha that happened today, mm -hmm. the money you have from in your property would cover the next 10, 15 years of your, your healthcare needs. I asked the question, what's the growth rate of your property? Mm -hmm. And what's the growth rate of costs of long-term care or home care? Right. And do they match? Right. And they go, no, home care and long-term care inflation rate is way more than what my property value goes up year over year on average. Mm -hmm. Well, then are you matched properly with the investment to match the goal? The asset and the goal, yeah. Is the strategy matching? Right. But no one comes to us and say, is this the right investment for me when it comes to real estate being used for a healthcare need in the future? Right, right. It just seems like it's a bucket of money just waiting to be used and I'll just use it at that point in time. Yeah. And, and we've talked about this on plenty of shows in the past. It's silo thinking too, right? Yeah. So we often put our assets into different silos and you're not considering the full picture Correct. and what all these things are supposed to do. And when you do that, you can create all kinds of problems for yourself. Correct. And so when you're looking at the total picture, the fears that you have, the concerns that you have, the goals that you want, how do you make sure this all works out? How does it all come together? Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about that in our upcoming <clears throat> seminar on Tuesday, June 20th, 7 p.m. at the Carriage House Inn. You need to reserve your seats, so go to morethanmoneyradio.com. That's morethanmoneyradio.com. You know, Faisal, I think we've had a really, uh, really good show today talking about the purpose of retirement. Okay, It's always got to start there. We're talking about specialized strategies like trusts today and trying to demystify those things, right? And then this whole notion of you got to back it up. you got to match assets, right? We call it asset dedication. Dedicate assets to do certain things in retirement, and there's multiple goals. And please, if anything, if you, if you can take from this, the one thing you can take when it comes to your portfolio is understand the volatility or risk that you're invested in. Right. Because if you, the, 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 what can really hurt you is not knowing that whole picture. On behalf of Faisal, myself, Dave, we want to thank you for joining us for another edition of More Than Money on QR Calgary. We'll look forward to talking with you next week. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.